open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. And our focus is going to be on chapters 5 through 8. That's one quarter of the book of Romans. But I want to encourage us this morning as we get ready to lift the emblems of broken body and shed blood to our lips with this truth, hope as a result of righteousness by faith. Hope as a result of righteousness by faith. You've just opened up to the book of Romans or turned to it on your digital device. And it's helpful to remember that Romans is a letter. It was a letter written to real people that were really suffering as Christians in the world empire of its day in the capital of Rome. It's often overwhelming as a letter because we don't read it as such. We sometimes read it as a systematic theology. There's benefit to that, but it's not a systematic theology. Sometimes we read it as a defense of a man-made system built on interdependent logical points. But that's not why Romans was written. Romans was a letter written to believers in the Roman Empire as they tried to follow Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The introduction really stretches from verse 1 to 17 and concludes with a transition that states the letter's theme and uh, you'll see that in verses 16 to 17. I'm just going to uh, highlight part of verse 16. But that that transition and theme is this. The gospel, the good news, is the revelation of God's righteousness, which people can experience only by faith. Well, who's included in that? Look at verse 16. To everyone who believes. Chapters 1 to 4, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on, emphasize that God has fulfilled His saving promises through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, specifically the promises He made in the Old Testament. The aim in, so, so this first main section is chapter 1, verse 18, and it stretches all the way to chapter 4, verse 25. And what that shows is that God's saving promises made in the Old Testament have been fulfilled. That's why all of chapter 4 then focuses on one individual, and his name is Adam. Adam existed before the law. He existed before Moses. Adam represents all of humanity. Well, what hope is there if Adam represents you and me? Paul's going to make that argument as we move through sections 5 through 8. Look at Romans 3.20. This is still the first section and, and you're going to have to really uh, focus on these words because not all theological words mean the same thing. Sometimes we, we bunch them all up. Redemption and justification and reconciliation. No, the Holy Spirit has inspired these writers to use specific words. And you're going to get a whole basket of them here in, in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 20. For by works of the law... Remember, he's talking about the Old Testament promises. No human being will be justified. That means right standing or, or legally declared righteous. By works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. By the way, that's good news. 
Because, because legal rightness before God does not depend on those who try the hardest or those who behave the best or those who find success or wear the religious robes or even cross oceans. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for crossing oceans to make converts that were twice the devils that they were. That's good news that no one is justified by the works of the law. Keep reading. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, who is it available to? Keep reading. For all who believe. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all broken the law. Verse 24, and are justified, there's that word again, um, legally declared righteous, and are justified, how? By His grace as a gift. Through the redemption, that means to buy out or purchase, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, here's another one, as a propitiation. This is not really an attractional introduction, is it? It's not, it's not a quaint story. It's not a little poem. I mean, we are, we are just getting this huge vocabulary of theological truth, which, by the way, defines the good news. God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation, which is the appeasement of His wrath. And if you read in verse 1, it says that, that the wrath of God is revealed against humanity. And now He's starting to provide the good news answer to that. And how has he done that? How has Jesus Christ appeased the wrath of God? Look at the latter part of verse 25. By his blood. Well, how, how do I know I'm a recipient of that? Well, how is it received? The very end of verse 25. By what? By faith. We have hope as a result of righteousness by faith. We could continue to unpack chapters 3 to 4, but I want to go right now down to chapter 5. Sin has a death grip on all people and only an act of God can release it. It is received as a gift through faith. And now in chapter 5 to 8, Paul ties together that righteousness by faith with future hope. And hope is something we need, isn't it? I don't know if you wake up even on a Sunday morning and read the news or yesterday or consider people that live around you or worse, sometimes look into your own heart. And we need hope. We need future hope. We need something that is real. We need a confident expectation and something that is true and it's something that will not disappoint. And what Paul does in Romans five to eight is he ties together that hope with righteousness by faith. So look at chapter 5, verse 1, and, and we're going to take huge chunks. We're going, to go, we're going to go verse 1 to 11. We don't have time to read the entire passage because we're going to get all the way to the end of chapter 8. But chapters, chapter 5, 1 to 11 puts forward the assurance of hope. The first words of chapter 5 remind the reader that God's saving promises, again, you're, you're going to get hopefully not tired of hearing this, but you're going to leave remembering it, it is experienced by what? By faith. Look at verse 1. Therefore, which sums up the entire substance of chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 4, verse 25, therefore, 
since we have been justified by faith. It's exactly why he uses Abraham as an illustration. But then he goes on to list the benefits of justification. Look at verse one. We have peace with God. Look at verse two. We have access to his grace by faith and therefore we rejoice in hope. Matter of fact, verse three, we're even able to have an attitude of rejoicing in our suffering. And in verse five, we experience the love of God poured out into our hearts. Verse nine, we are saved from God's wrath by Jesus blood. In verse 10, we are reconciled, which is the relational term. We are brought back together with God in a right standing because of the death of his son. Now, here's a question. How can believers rejoice equally in future glory and present afflictions if the present afflictions are what we experience most right now? How can we do that? Look at chapter 5, verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's something future. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, our current situation, our current hurts, knowing something. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces, what's the next word? Hope. And hope doesn't what? Keep reading. Hope doesn't put us to shame. It's not an I hope so, or I really hope this happens. It is a confident expectation in what? Keep reading. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thomas Schreiner said this, The hard realities of everyday life conspire to make believers more godly and Christ-like. Even though the appearance of it, the optics of it look the exact opposite, the actual suffering, even long-term suffering, the hard realities of everyday life are conspiring to make us more godly. This builds hope in that they have really been justified and that they are truly heading for future glory. So now he's going to bring a contrast or a comparison. Look at verse 7. Because what verse 7 does now is it shows that the love of God is not like human love. Let's read verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Do you have a single friend who, who, who you know beyond a shadow of a doubt would die for you right now? Can you name a single friend who would die in your place for you. Do you know how rare that is? It's so rare that it makes the headlines when it happens. It makes the news. By contrast, look at what Jesus did. God sent Christ to die for those who weren't righteous and good. Look at verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As a matter of fact, We were ungodly and we were his enemies. Believers know that their subjective experience in God is true, right? The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. We know that not just because we feel it. We know it because of the historical work of Christ that Christ has died for us. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 9. 
And, and, he, and he's going to move from the lesser to the greater. I want, to, I want you to note three phrases. I'll highlight them as I read them. Since, therefore, we have been justified, right? Even as his enemies, he died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood. Here's one of the, here's one of the statements. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So what Paul's, what, what Paul's doing is he's arguing from righteousness to future hope. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Here it is again. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Again, arguing from righteousness to hope. Look at verse 11. He uses the statement a third time. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. Again, a present reality tied to a future hope. Next section, verse 12. We have the assurance of salvation, and in part that assurance comes with a hope in Christ's triumph over Adam's sin. Matter of fact, verse 12 to 21, in short, put forward two main powers, two enemies, if you would, two things that try to steal hope from a believer's life. It's sin and death. Look at Romans 5.12. He's going to mention sin three times and death twice in that single verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and who's that one man? Through Adam, who represents all of humanity, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what... What Paul is going to do now is show you that Jesus Christ actually has a greater effect on humanity and history than Adam did. Five times there's going to be a contrast. Let's look at what he says about Adam first. Look at verse 15. Many died because of Adam's sin. Verse 16. Adam's sin brought condemnation to all. Verse 17. Death reigned because of Adam's sin. Verse 18, people faced condemnation because of Adam's one trespass. In verse 19, by virtue of Adam's sin, people were made sinners. But Adam no longer represents the believer. Who represents you? When you stand before God, even after a week of failure, who, who do you want to represent you? Last week was marked by every single person in this congregation by some kind of falling short of God's glory. Because we still have the principle of sin at work within us. It's the flesh. The flesh cannot be reformed. You can't add a bunch of new laws to the flesh. The flesh is the flesh. So when I stand before God, my judge, here's who I want to represent me. Jesus Christ. Not Adam. I want Jesus Christ to stand before me, and that's exactly what he did. Look at verse 15. Christ's grace and gift abounded for many. Verse 16. His grace brought justification, where Adam introduced condemnation. Both are legal terms. Verse 17. Instead of death reigning, believers now reign in life. Verse 18, the righteous act of Jesus leads to life. And verse 19, through Christ's obedience, many are now 
made righteous. The unrighteous made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might receive His righteousness. That's the beauty of, of, of Romans chapter 5. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, has overcome the disastrous results of Adam's sin. So look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. He closes that section by highlighting the law, that the law cannot save you, but the law does act as a guardian, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. The law highlights your sin. We're going to look at that in chapter 7. But for now, turn to chapter 6. Hope in the triumph of grace over the power of sin. If you start to fully understand the gospel, the good news, and I I, I want you to hear this. You have not fully, you may be born again, but you may not fully understand all the implications and ramifications of the gospel if you don't ask the question of chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if Jesus forgives all sin... And where sin abounds, grace overabounds. Why wouldn't we just keep sinning so grace can be bigger? Have you ever asked that question? Paul does. Think of the responses that Paul could have given. Well, that would be wrong. Or that's against God's law. Or there's terrible consequences. And by the way, all those answers are right. And those things are taught in other places in the Scriptures. But Paul doesn't start there. He doesn't start with wrongness or law or consequences. What he starts with is our union with Jesus Christ. Because if I have a new identity and that identity is in Christ and my identity is no longer in Adam, that's the argument that he's going to put forward. So look at verse 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's talking about spirit baptism here. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you trusted in His blood for your redemption, for your justification, for your reconciliation, when you did that, it is as if you died on the cross with Jesus and you were buried with Him and that you rose again. What does Paul mean when he claims that we Christians have died to sin? Verse 2, because, because I don't want somebody here to get hung up on that because they sinned this morning on the way to gather with highlands. What does he mean that we die to sin? Does he mean that we can't sin anymore? Well, that would make no sense in light of all the admonitions he gives us. Don't submit to this, but submit to Christ. Or don't, don't uh, give your instruments of your body to sin anymore. It would make no sense. What does he mean by this? First of all, Paul speaks of dying to sin singular. He doesn't say sins. The language mirrors the pattern of this entire section in Romans 5 to 8, where Paul uses the term sin 
singular 22 different times. The focus, therefore, is not on the sins people commit, but on the underlying fact or principle or power of sin, meaning sin was your master. But that doesn't even give us the full clarity. Second, Paul reverts quickly in chapter six to the metaphor of freedom from slavery. That's a picture that he's going to put forward. Matter of fact, in verse seven, eighteen, twenty-two, he says, you are no longer slaves to sin. In, in verse 6, 17, and 20, and he says that Christians have been freed from sin. So, dying to sin has something to do with being delivered from its mastery or lordship. But third, this is interesting, look at verse 10. Christ is also said to have died to sin. Well, that's confusing. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So whatever it means to die to sin must indicate an experience that Jesus Christ had. Well, he was sinless. He was never under its lordship. But here's what happened. When Jesus Christ became fully human, he entered into the sphere or the domain of sin to deliver us out of it. And therefore, we are delivered from its mastery or lordship. That's what death to sin refers to, released from the dominance or the power of sin. So, simply put, if you, if you didn't track through all of that, when your relationship to God changes, your relationship to sin changes. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the union with Christ. Look at verse 13. Do not, indicating that you can, and we often do, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. What Paul is saying is that sin should no longer be the characteristic pattern of your life. Look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. So he's saying, stop living as though sin is still your master. Stop living as though sin is still calling the shots. That has been broken. The power and the realm and the mastery have been broken as you entered into union with Christ. Okay, we'll finish up chapter 6 by looking at the two questions that split this section. Look at the first question in verse 1. What shall we say then? Okay, in response to the teaching of chapter 5, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Everything from chapter 2 to 14 is the answer. Look at the second question, verse 15. What then? What should our response be to his answer in verses 2 to 14? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Everything in verses 16 to 23 is Paul's answer. Chapter 7. We've got to address the law because we constantly want to live in relation to God through law. It's partly how we're wired. And do you know the law does not stifle hope? It actually highlights the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Paul's going to say, I had not known this sin unless the law said thou shalt not. The law is actually highlighting the exceeding sinfulness of sin and then points us as a guardian or a school teacher to Jesus Christ. 
Paul's thesis is found, uh, his thesis is found in verse 4 and 6. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to what? The law. Verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. When sin was our master, the law held us captive to it. Do you know that when you go to the law with your sin, it is impersonal and inflexible? If, if I went to the law this past week because of my sin, you know what it does? You know what the law does? It judges. It condemns. It requires death. It's what Romans 6.23 said in the previous chapter, for the wages of sin is death. That's what the law does. Do you know that is why Lady Justice, who in theory <laughs> represents our justice system, holds scales and has what on her face? A blindfold. Do you know why? Justice is blind. The law is blind. It is exacting regardless of who you are. So when you come in failure last week, if you go to the law, it's going to say death. If you go to the law, it's going to say cursed. If you go to the law, it's going to judge with exactness. But do you know when you die to sin and the law and you stand before God, the judge, guess who represents you now? This is his entire argument. Jesus Christ. Listen to the dilemma we're in. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you Galatians chapter 3, 23 to 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And when the law curses us and judges us, it's actually training us to look for hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. Do you know that you don't need more religion or law imposed on what you do? You need to be reminded that you are justified by faith. Luke chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Well, what did the body of Christ do? Jesus Christ took all your punishment for breaking the law. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So not only when you believe, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, does your relationship change from sin to relating to him through Christ? Your relationship to the law changes. And some of us were taught to relate to God through the law even after we trusted him. I want you to, I want you to hear what Paul tells the church at Colossae in chapter 2.20. If with Christ you died, that's union with Christ, to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. 
according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Law cannot reform the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, union with him, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. Why? For you have died. That's union with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, again, future hope, then you also will appear with him in glory. Chapter 8. This is the conclusion. Paul comes right into chapter 8 by saying in verse 1, and this is what we need to be reminded of. Look at verse 1, chapter 8. There is therefore, in light of the teachings of chapter 6 and chapter 7, there is therefore now no what? Just say the word out loud. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The chapter closes in verse 39 with the assurance that there is no separation. No condemnation and no separation Despite our ongoing struggle with sin, and guess what that does? That gives hope. In chapter 8, Paul connects the believer's past redemption to future joy by means of our status as sons. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Why sons and not daughters? Well, because, because it is the son who received the future inheritance and now you know, in, in Christ, there is neither male nor female. Makes sense in light of this. We are all, in a sense, heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus used that term. It's Aramaic. It's a, a sincere term. One of closeness, it is just father, father. The idea of adoption, interestingly, was taken from the, the, the Greco-Roman world. The Romans would have understood this. Matter of fact, it was the Roman emperor Julius Caesar who adopted a young man named Octavian. It was not his real son. But the adoption legally was binding and he became the heir to the entire Roman Empire and he then changed his name to Augustus. Being adopted, he was treated like a true son with rights to sit on the throne. And that's really what Paul is suggesting here, that, that the God of the universe has adopted you and you are now joint heirs with Christ. So look at verse 16 to 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And why did He have to add this? Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Last section, assurance of hope. That's where He started in Romans 5. That's where he's going to end. He begins by drawing our gaze in verse 18 to the glory that will be revealed in us. Matter of fact, in verse 30, he's going to say those whom he justified, he also glorified as though it's already done. Go back to what he said in verse 17. Suffer 
There is a suffering that is preparing us for the glorification. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Are you suffering? Physically, are you suffering? Emotionally, are you suffering? Theologically, are you suffering? Trying to understand the gap between God's sovereignty and God's goodness. There are many layers to suffering. And what we find hopeful in this text is that God is using it to prepare us for something better. You know, some things aren't worth comparing. I got on and I I looked at houses in Santa Cruz, California, near the boardwalk. I found one I really like at $5.9 million. Do you know you cannot compare that to a place on the Monopoly board? Which is really worthless, especially if your friend built up Baltic Avenue, because you know that's coming. Do you know comparing that spot on a Monopoly board with a $5.9 million property? It's silly. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. No matter how severe or prolonged the suffering is, it cannot compare with the glory that awaits for us. So look at verse 24. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Now look how we're supposed to respond. Look at verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? What, what can our response be to that? Paul divides his response into two parts. Look at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And now Paul moves to the relational language of love. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Those can all be present realities in our life as we suffer. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Not because we're strong or feel strong, but because Jesus Christ now represents us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, no separation. Here's why. First verse. In Christ Jesus, last verse, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hope as a result of righteousness by faith. I'm going to invite our music team forward. 
I'm going to read a verse and give us 30 seconds of silence to ponder that verse. And then we will sing and then we will take the Lord's Supper. Romans 5.8 God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners.